The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, November 27th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's woke vote versus the MAGA wagon. Yes, in Mississippi, Mississippi, the polls may even be closed by the time you hear this. And who knows if they ever really opened anyway in the poorer parts of Jackson. But the Democratic candidate, Mike Espy, was being helped by such organizations as Woke Vote, the registration and community organizing organization Woke Vote, or as it's pronounced in Germany, Volk Vote, which could turn out to be a non-factor in this case. The MAGA wagon, on the other hand, has been Cindy Hyde-Smith's mode of transport during the campaign. While not in D.C., Hyde-Smith expects to continue scooting around the SIP in what's been dubbed as the MAGA wagon. I guess so long as this version of the MAGA wagon doesn't have, in addition to that huge picture of President Trump on its side, a few photos of Michael Moore and Jill Stein in crosshairs, and the word CNN sucks, and the phrase top soccer recruits for Trump, it's a lesser version, a less bad version of the MAGA wagon we all came to know and love from a few weeks ago. Oh, Florida man, how we miss your insouciant brand of incompetent evil. But this race, the Mississippi race, to hear the national media, it all comes down to one sentence. Cindy Hyde-Smith saying she'd like to attend a public hanging if it meant locking up the support of a key backer, apparently a supporter whose entertainment tastes run to the medieval. If only she'd have cited bear baiting. But while those words and the failure to adequately apologize for them in more substance are troubling indeed, I do think that Mississippi voters probably want to vote on issues other than one ill-considered phrase or one ill-considered phrase and an overheard voter suppression crack and the segregation academy, or as they called it back then, the school with textbooks that were written in the past 20 years. To the national media, the Mississippi Senate seat is just one more Senate seat, so 52 versus 53, one uh, one hurdle to overcome or not in two years. It's also a proxy slap at Trump, perhaps a chance to rebuke racism. None of those things are wrong. But to a Mississippian, there are other issues, bigger issues. And I am here to say that on those issues, Cindy Hyde-Smith is even worse than she is on the public hanging issue. Given the chance, she would almost certainly take back the public hanging remark. But she's been given every chance to criticize Trump's tariffs, and she never does. She, in fact, favors Trump's tariffs. She affirmatively favors them. She loves Trump. She says his economic policies are helping Mississippi. In truth, they are not. Clearly, Mississippi soybean farmers are getting killed because China is retaliating to the ill-conceived steel tariffs. On, on the soybean crop, playing it out on the poor soybean. And now in Mississippi, chicken farmers are a flutter. Okay, not going to pun. They're crying foul. Don't do it, Mike. They think Trump's a pecker. Okay, I could live with that. Because South Africa is threatening to retaliate against the U.S. poultry market for tariffs that Trump has placed on South Africa. In Mississippi, there are more than 1,400 poultry farms, and the poultry industry contributed $2.5 billion to the state's economy last year. And South Africa is a huge importer of bone-in chicken. But you know who's getting boned? 
It's Mississippi. Mississippi is one of the weakest states in the country economically. U.S. News, assisted by McKinsey, rank it 48th economically. So you might say, oh, room to grow, right? Actually, in 2017, the year for which we have full statistics, because, you know, there's still some left in 2018, Mississippi grew by 0.3%, its growth 46th out of all states. Mississippi either has the lowest or nearly the lowest weekly wage and extremely low per capita income. This is due to history, due to a poor public education system, due to an economy that's agrarian, not a modern economy. But none of this is helped by Trump's killer and petty tariff policies. Public hanging rhetoric aside, those policy choices are what really hurt Mississippians every day. And Mama Magawagon is happily along for the ride. On the show today, I spiel about when terrible arguments obscure merely bad ideas. It's a national challenge to be grappled with. But first, a new report out says that military readiness has been degraded to the point where the U.S. might not be able to win two large-scale wars conducted simultaneously. Much like the doctor's advice to the patient, who says it hurts when I do this, I might counsel the military, then maybe you shouldn't get into two large-scale wars at the same time. But of course, that shows how little I know. A man with much better insight, Aaron Mehta, Pentagon correspondent for Defense News, is up next. A new report out says that the U.S. military, though the largest in the world, though the most well-funded in the world many times over, though the most able to inflict damage and most able to weather attacks better than any military ever, still not good enough as the Senate Armed Services Committee heard today. I think it was unanimous view of all commissioners that we are now uh, on the cusp of a national security emergency because of the waning of our military advantages and the dangers that the current world presents perhaps the most complex, volatile, and difficult security environment that the United States has has ever faced. That was Eric Edelman, the National Defense Strategy co-chair, testifying before the Senate today. Here to discuss the report and the state of the military is Aaron Mehta, the deputy editor and senior Pentagon correspondent for Defense News. By the way, when you're senior Pentagon correspondent of Defense News, that's like being, you know, treasury reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Hello, Aaron. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Okay, so let's talk about the hearings that are going on today, which is the the military's preparedness to win a war or several wars at once. That's right. So there's a kind of an ongoing question for the last couple of years, uh, really since Russia's invasion of Crimea, about, hey, is the U.S. really capable of handling what's called a great power competition, uh, essentially going to war with a major competitor? The next logical question would be, okay, is the U.S. capable of handling major war with two competitors, Uh i.e. Russia and China? Uh, And then is it capable of handling a war with one major competitor, Russia, China, and a lesser competitor, uh, North Korea, which is now even trickier with their nuclear capabilities? A lot of moving parts, right? The big thing that's kind of happened the last couple of weeks is that a congressionally formed panel of experts, these are 12 experts, six Democrats and six Republicans who are very well known in kind of wonky national security circles, people seen as you know very serious people. Yeah. Uh, they came out with a report on November 14th, which essentially said uh, the U.S. military is in a, quote, crisis of national security. And 
the U.S. military would, quote, suffer unacceptably high casualties and loss of major capital assets, things like major ships, planes, uh, in the next conflict, it might struggle to win or perhaps lose a war against China or Russia. That's kind of a, a shocking statement and the type of thing that uh, Secretary Jim Mattis has in the past said he felt we shouldn't be saying such kind of broad statements about America's capabilities uh, because it could embolden enemies to, to potentially try to do something. Essentially, what this report says is, hey, we might win a war against Russia or China. We are not going to be able to win a war against both of them at the same time. Uh-huh. And if we win that war, we enter that war, even with just one of them, it means essentially America can't keep doing the things that we're doing around the world at the same time. We just don't have the assets. Okay, a couple things. Um, what's the standard? Has it always been the standard that the United States should be able to win two major wars at the same time? I don't know, always. Since World War II, have we funded the military or run our military with the understanding that if the United States got into two major wars, we'd be able to win them? That's been the standard for a long time. Uh, that standard has kind of faded in the post-9-11 era because, you know, as you came out of the Cold War, there was a drawdown, just broadly speaking, of the military assets, the peace dividend, it's called. Essentially, everyone looking around saying, hey, we won the Cold War, everything's fine, this is a new peace century. Then you get into 9-11, you start getting to Afghanistan and Iraq, and those are different types of fights. Those are the type of fights where you can use low-end stuff. It's, it's not the commitment of a high-end war that would be needed. And those high-end assets have kind of dried up, and the strategy has dried up. As a result, the last couple of years, the thought had been, uh, okay, we won't have to fight two big wars, so let's not worry about that. When Russia kicked up in Ukraine, and then China kind of revealed some new capabilities and geographical ideas that perhaps hadn't been expected, uh, all of a sudden, everyone's looking at this and going, do we need to go back to that two-war construct? Can we go back to that two-war construct? Uh, this report and, and other people who talked to inside Washington say, It's just not going to happen. Okay. The idea that the United States could lose a war to Russia, not Russia and China, and then Russia would be the second one in. This is the Red Dawn scenario, right? But the idea that the United States could lose a war to Russia, which I think has one-seventh the military spending, and beyond just the money spent, their equipment is inferior, their training is probably inferior. I'm sure the Russian fighting man is a tough and hardy man, but they don't have the kind of battle armor or intelligence capabilities that the United States does. It seems laughable to me and the sort of thing maybe you say to get people to pay attention or to up the funding, but it it seems impossible to me. What do military experts say? Well, it depends on what you mean by losing, right? That's the big question. You know, the, well, that the is nightmare the big scenario. question because we, it does seem that the recent history of United States wars is winning in terms of killing a hundred times the amount of people who are killed, and yet we still chalk it up as at least a stalemate. But sorry to interrupt. Well, no, I think that's, I mean, that's the point, right? If Does the U.S. win a war if Russia is a nuclear wasteland and we've mostly not nuclear wasteland, right? That's the nightmare scenario. People yeah. kick out there with all the nuclear stuff. You know, I think... The thought there is Russia has just sheer numbers to a certain extent, and as high-tech as, as the U.S. has been and our capabilities have been, uh, numbers do still matter to an extent. The other aspect is that Russia has gotten really well, as we've seen in the last couple of years, in hybrid warfare. There's different parts of that. One part is the little green men, as we call them, which are the guys who run around Ukraine saying, we're just loyal Russian patriots who feel so... Uh, inspired to go into Ukraine and rescue our true homeland. And they're, you know, taking their Russian military badges off of the border and then putting them back on when they cross back into Russia. The other is cyber, hacking of elections, uh, shutting down of infrastructure. There's a big concern that there are little 
for lack of a better word, cyber time bombs planted throughout America and our allies' infrastructure that in the case of a day one war would get triggered, shut down things like power plants, water supplies, things like that. So we have to remember that when we talk about wars now, we're not just talking force on force. We're talking about everything that comes with it. I tend to agree. I think Russia is maybe less of the threat than China is. But part of the, the mix here is, again, that even if you win the war, it will cost the U.S. massive amounts of you know, capital assets, people, right. uh, you know, large ships, planes. And it will require us to basically stop doing the type of things we're doing in Iraq, Afghanistan, and around the world, down in uh, Africa, for example. You know, if there's a big, massive fight between the U.S. and Russia, can we keep patrolling the Pacific and make sure China doesn't grab Taiwan at that point? That's kind of the concern. The U.S. has stretched itself thin as, for lack of a better term, the world's policeman. And if a major conflict kicks off now, there's a sense that that will have to be the only focus. I want to ask you about cyber. Um, I understand why if I were writing that report, if I were John Kyle, who's now a senator who was on that committee, or what's the admiral's name? Gary Roughhead? Yeah, Gary Roughhead. Love that guy. top naval officer. Of course he was, right? Either that or like a fullback for the University of Notre Dame. <laughs> anyway, if I was one of those guys, I would definitely say, oh, it also includes cyber. Cyber is real. Cyber is the recent threat. Cyber is the unknown threat. But also, I do wonder if you include cyber in there to get everyone's attention, but what you really want is two more aircraft carriers, right? A bunch more A-10 warthogs, which, by the way, are pretty good buy. Here, they're only 18 million. So (laughs) is it really the future of war and the future of winning war, we have to look at the cyber component, or is it getting everyone very scared about the ability to win conventional land wars of the type that we doubt we're going to fight? And the way to get everyone scared about that is to give a nod to cyber. Why pick just one, right? I mean, look, the cyber stuff is, there is a real threat there. And you talk to people who are experts with this, they say the U.S. really is at a risk of falling behind where China and Russia are on how to use cyber, the best ways to kind of use it against uh, population, use it against war, kind of cover yourself. There is a real concern there. At the same time, cyber is kind of this word that right now you walk around Washington, you yell it, and somebody will throw 100 bucks at you. Well, it was Cyber Monday yesterday. Exactly. There you go. Uh, (laughs) And Bezos is coming to Washington, so it's perfect. Um, (laughs) You know, this report, let's be frank, this report is, again, it's written by people who are very well respected, but they're also all people who are people of the Pentagon, right? People from the national security community. And you're already seeing members of Congress basically carrying this report around and yelling, this report shows we need more money. Right. So that's what this report, fundamentally, it's in the short term, is going to be the cudgel of anytime somebody says, well, maybe we don't need to be funding the military at this high level. Maybe we could have some cuts. Somebody will take out this report and say, we're all going to die if we don't have more money. But okay, so then what's the legitimate, that that would argue that it's, you know, a mechanism for funding, and there's probably some legitimacy to it. But do the wise men and women of Washington and the people who actually control the purse strings buy the fact that our military has been degraded to uh, a scarier place now than it's been in the last 20 or 30 years? I think they do. There is mm. a consensus around the, the national security community. Again, you got to remember, the national security community is one part of Congress. In my business, I tend to think of them as a big part of it. Yep. They control a giant part of the budget. But there's other trade-offs that happen. And while there is this consensus that, okay, we have fallen behind in certain high-end technologies, future technologies, particular things like AI for combat, uh, hypersonic weapons is a big one you'll hear about, missile defense. Uh, There's a real sense and a real agreement that the U.S. has been matched or is starting to fall behind versus certainly China and and to an extent Russia on that stuff. But the big question is going to be, can 
the members of the national security environment, the members of Congress who want more money for defense, can they convince their fellow members who maybe aren't, you know, defense people or aren't from districts where the defense really matters, that this is an investment worth having, especially when, you know, we all know the deficit is an issue, the tax cuts may have an impact on that going forward. What's the trade-off going to be? Do people look and ask the question, okay, so the United States has not only the largest military in the world, but the largest, most powerful than the next, what, seven or so combined, right? What has it gotten us? Maybe it's a cynical question. We've, there's no draft and the lives of most Americans have not been touched by military conflict. And yet Japan spends a lot less on their military. And of course, Germany does and Denmark does. And have they really, are they really so much worse off than the United States by not having this huge portion of their spending go to the military? It's a good question. It's a fair question. Um, and it's one that I think will be asked with Democrats taking the House now. Uh, you know, the the line that Jim Mattis likes to use, the Secretary of Defense, and you hear it passed on Washington a lot is, uh, you know, security is like air. You don't know you need it until it's not there. Mm-hmm. You know, you can take that or leave that line, but yeah, it, it but does sum could, up kind of how they Right, view but it. that's also what the guy who runs one of those bullshit oxygen bars tells you, right? <laughs> like Canada has air too. Canada spends, you know, a 20th on its military. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the I think what it comes down to is fundamentally the U.S. has a role in the world unlike those other countries, right? Yeah. On both sides of the globe, right? We are a Pacific and an Atlantic nation. Uh, we have assets up in Antarctica and we have assets in, you know, the deepest jungles. We are spread throughout the world. Whether or not the U.S. should have that mission, should give itself that mission, should be doing what it does around the world is kind of a separate question. If the U.S. has agreed as a country and Politically, it seems to have that the U.S. should be out doing these things every day, then it needs to spend to keep doing them. Um, The only other countries who are really interested in that kind of wide-reaching, wide-ranging grip around the world are Russia and China. Then the argument becomes, if the U.S. withdraws from doing this stuff, are you okay with Russia and China filling those gaps? China in particular, uh, in Africa, Latin America, Asia is really expanding its reach economically as well as militarily. Are you okay with China having kind of the being the prime person in those areas? The answer may be yes. So far, the answer has been no. Uh, and as long as that answer is no, and the feelings should be the U.S. maintains, for lack of better term, superiority on this stuff, it's going to have to spend to do that. Yeah, and I should say, as a matter of uh, clarification, Canada spends one thirtieth uh, of its spending on the budget <laughs> as we do on the military budget. Well, hey, they're looking to up their buy too. So there you go. <laughs> Aaron Meta is the deputy editor and senior Pentagon correspondent for Defense News. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. My name's Mike, and I once vaguely complimented Ben Shapiro. I said he's good at arguing and speaking, and he generally represents the conservative argument in a pretty forceful way. I seek out his podcast, not because I like or agree with him, but he informs me, he at least tells me what a robust and generally not untethered to factual version of the conservative argument is. For saying so, I often get a lot of criticism, even of the, I can't listen to you anymore, Mike Pesca, knowing that you don't hate Ben Shapiro variety. Okay, good. I say it's okay to weed out weak listeners. Speaking of weeding out the weeds, 
That podcast from Vox was speaking of Ben Shapiro. The thesis they were pursuing was that there is a philosophy that they call California conservatism, which is like regular king-size conservatism, only a little bit longer, so the perfectly fine sheets that you own for years won't fit. The weeds didn't really define the tenets of the beliefs of California conservatism as much as they got more into what the California conservatives were against and who they are. But I did learn something from that podcast discussion. It's that Weed's co-host and Vox writer Matt Iglesias really, really holds Ben Shapiro in low regard. Like, what's the real deal with Ben Shapiro? Like, is he just running a scam? Is he, like, insanely racist? I don't even think he is because no, he – I, I don't think so. It just, it just seems like a dumb con. The other two panelists on the show said, no, no, he actually is conservative and, you know, he's smart. Iglesias was not persuaded. I'm, like, scrolling through the collected works of Ben Shapiro and it's just, like – I don't know. I, I want to use a nice word for it. He is not talking about issues that have concrete material implications for the majority of people, right? And there's a reason for that, right? There's like this kind of whirligig that quality to it all that that to me is a sort of a scam. You know, it's like, why can't you win in California? Now, you should know that a few weeks ago, Ben Shapiro had this to say about Matt Iglesias. And Matt Iglesias, who is just an idiot. I mean, he's, he's Ralph. He's Ralphie from, from The Simpsons. Ben, you cho-cho chose the wrong guy to say that about. Matt Iglesias, I could confidently say, without exaggeration, is a genius. He is one of those polydidacts whose intellect is pretty staggering. I bet he has as high an IQ as you do, Ben, which, if I had to bet, is pretty high. I think you're both pretty smart guys with different takes on the issues. One whose takes... I agree with more. Now, why do I put these two gentlemen in dialogue with each other? Is it because I feel the responsibility is perhaps one of the 19 regular listeners to both the Weeds and the Ben Shapiro podcast? No. Is it because I'm secretly hoping to set up a Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson type match play sitch, but to also actually find a way to collect the pay-per-view money? It is not. But now that I'm thinking about it, Venmo, Venmo could have worked. Here is why. It is because sometimes when we hate a person, we just can't hear their arguments. I think President Trump is a guy who makes horrible arguments and he makes them in a bad way. And I think he's a scam artist or kind of Ralphie from The Simpsons. Nah, not exactly. He's more like Homer plus Burns minus Smithers. But some of his arguments, even though he's the one making them, and even though he's making them usually in the most racist way possible, aren't entirely dismissible. Some of his stupid, destructive, distracted, distracting Twitter fights are actually, though shot through with lies and though poorly phrased, strictly speaking, actually in America's interests, like clamoring to get NATO allies to honor their commitments to up their defense budgets, not to pay their dues, that's how he says it, but to get them to pay more that's in America's interest. Let our allies knit a few squares in the quilt of protection that we blanket the continent of Europe with. This makes sense. Now, Trump does tend to shit the bed and befoul the quilt along the way. So that's bad. That's bad. But again, my overall point is just because Trump says it in the dumbest, most irrational, 
irascible way doesn't mean that it's entirely without merit. And sometimes his claims are without merit, but the merit isn't that I agree with them or that we should agree with them. It's that we need to recognize them as claims that even non-horrible, stupid, racist people might agree with, claims that could very well affect American policies. I think all of his racially charged fear-mongering over the caravan falls into that category. It doesn't mean... Just because Trump says it, it doesn't mean that there is a version of something to really worry about mixed up in all the Michigas associated with the caravan. Not that if you ask a Trump surrogate or another guest on Fox News, you'll get a better argument than the one Trump puts forth. Here was Tom Homan, former acting director of ICE. Yes, it's a huge cliche. All directors want to act. So Tom Homan, the acting former director... No, wait, the former acting director. I don't know. He's like on the short list to be on the on-deck circle. Anyway, Tom Homan had this analysis of tear-gassing sanctuary seekers at the border. Said this on the Laura Ingram show on Fox. When they enter country, they enter country illegally. First, first, first crimes are misdemeanor. However, a lot of these people, based on our intelligence, have been deported before. So when they enter the country illegally, that's a felony. Yeah. But one thing I want to say, though, for the naysayers and tear, tear guys, need to get this out. For those naysayers, Put on a uniform, strap a gun to your hip, get rocks thrown at you, and tell me there wasn't a better response. It was non-lethal law enforcement response that was proper, considering they're being assaulted. And where were they when the Obama administration was using tear gas? Oh, yeah, back in 2013. Yeah. You have to disperse a crowd. How do you disperse a crowd? But- oh, that's interesting. How do you disperse a crowd? Let me think about this, just on a personal level. Have I ever been in a crowd? Yes. Have you ever been in a crowd? I bet you have. Are you in that crowd now? You might be, but chances are you're not in that crowd. So think back. How'd you get out of that crowd? Was it via tear gas? I mean, probably some of the time, yeah. Lots of times even, but not all the time. For me, some ways to get out of the crowd include the subway door opening, and I just leave the Q train, or the jets falling behind by 20 in the fourth quarter, and I leave early. All those methods work. I'm just saying there might be some methods of crowd dispersal other than tear gas. Of course, I've never strapped on weapons, and I haven't done any of the strapping. I haven't put on uniforms to make a decision on crowd dispersal. Gotta say, perhaps doing so would influence the decision just in terms of what the psychiatrists call priming or suggestion. I might be inclined to take the militaristic decision upon the strapping and the uniform wearing. But you see what I've done here? I've taken this stupid, poorly reasoned, dumbass argument and I've criticized it and I've had great fun doing so. But I think I may have used that as a shortcut for a harder argument that could be in there if... They use smarter people to argue. There are thousands of people in this caravan. This is what Raihan Salam, a good arguer, calls a social innovation. So they found a way to make it cheaper and safer for people in Central America to try to cross into America, legally or illegally. I can say the caravan was, of course, overblown by Fox and Trump, but I do believe that most Americans have a level of concern about this, have a right to have some level of concern for people crossing the border illegally. Now, I can fixate, we can all fixate on Trump's use of vermine imagery, Trump's misstatement of facts, Tom Homan's saying nay to the naysayers, and I could bat away every dumb soundbite that Fox offers us. But there is a real policy concern underneath it all. And I'm a bit concerned that we delude ourselves if we don't take the issue seriously because it's so hard to take Trump seriously. Yes, he's a shady lying grifter. 
And sure, those who associate themselves with his policy agenda seem to have that stink on them too. But maybe the smartest con they ever pulled was to convince us the con was dumb. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname is Portugal's fourth largest trading partner. No, wait, wait. That should read Portugal is just producer Daniel Schrader's fourth largest trading partner. I may have mistaken my producers for a Boris Johnson outtake reel. It happens. Senior producer of Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. She is over the MAGA wagon. She's signing up for the SB Vespa. The gist. We're like a composite Simpsons character. The one-armed guy who owns the military supply store mixed with Bumblebee Man. We have no choice but to gas ourselves. Oomperu depperu dupru, and thanks for listening.